Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey folks, the Other People Podcast is a listener-supported program. Every episode of this show is free. It's all available for free, nearly 500 episodes and counting. You can listen online. You can listen on iTunes, Stitcher, iHeartRadio. You can listen on the free Other People app. The app is free. Everything's free. So I count on the support of listeners to help keep things going. If you would like to support this program, you can do so by visiting patreon.com slash otherpplpod. That's patreon.com slash other PPL pod. Thank you. Okay. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. What a struggle, you know? It was incredible. It was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listing. Just one person and just one hey everybody, time. how's it going? Right. Welcome to right. the Other People Podcast, first show of 2018. I'm Brad Listy. I'm here in Los Angeles, California. Happy New Year. I hope you had a nice holiday. I'm back after a couple of weeks off. I did the uh, holiday episode with uh, Gene and Adam, and then Christmas came, and I got sick. I got the flu, and I think I talked about this uh, in the uh, final episode of 2017, so I'm not going to rehash that, but in case you missed it, I was out with the flu for like a week and a half. It was bad. And then uh, I went on vacation with my family. We went to Arizona for a week. My sister was there, her kids, my parents showed up. So my, I have two sisters. One of my sisters was there. And so there were cousins and there was grandparents and it was my family and it was fun. We had a good time. I'm glad we went. We just got back. I feel a little tired because that's the way vacation works. You feel tired after vacation. You need like a couple of days to like recover, sleep in your own bed, do some laundry, get some groceries, and then I got to go back to work, and f including this show. I got to get this show back rolling as we head into the new year. So uh, I'm very pleased to have Lauren Haldeman on the program today. She has a new, uh, she's a poet, and she has a new collection of poems out called Instead of Dying. It's the winner of the Colorado Prize for Poetry. It's available now from uh, the Center for Literary Publishing at Colorado State University. She uh, has a couple of other books. She has a chapbook out. She has another collection of poetry out called Calendae. So you can track her books down. But the new one is called Instead of Dying. She and I had a really good conversation. I'm very pleased to get to share that with you in just a second. Uh, what do I tell you? I told you I got sick. I told you I went on vacation. 
We went to Sedona. It's a beautiful place. I like Sedona. I like the hike. Weather was good. It was a little cold. I don't like hot Arizona. I like, you know, winter in the desert is when you do Arizona. If you go to Arizona and even Sedona, which is up at elevation a little bit, it's too hot. Can't deal with that. But the winter, the spring, the fall, you know, those transitional seasons, it's quite lovely. So I I really enjoyed that. Went to the Grand Canyon with my kids. Got to show them that. I have not seen the Grand Canyon since I was like 20 years old. Not even, maybe 19. I went on a road trip and uh, went to Sedona back then. So it had been like 20 years, more than 20 years since I've been to these places. And uh, now I come back, I've got my kids with me. And I got to say, the Grand Canyon really uh, is spectacular in person. It's, it's, uh, it's sort of surreal. It doesn't even look real when you're standing there. The scale of it. So we went there. It was freezing. I liked it. Took a bunch of pictures. Like we went on a tour bus. <laughs> we just had all these kids. It's like, let's not drive. We wanted to all be in the same thing. So we had this person drive us up to the Grand Canyon. One of these pink uh, buses. Have you ever seen these things? Can't miss them. So we're getting carted around the Grand Canyon. There's like, you know, 12 of us or whatever. And, uh, you know, we eat lunch. We have like a picnic lunch and then we're staring out at the Grand Canyon and my sister's terrified of heights and she thinks her kids are going to fall. Stay away from the edge. You know, I get it though. It's like a little, it's a little sketchy. It's not entirely, uh, safe. You know, you gotta be a little bit careful. You can't, can't let your kids go like run around on the edge, <laughs> which I guess is uh, common sense, but we did the grand Canyon. We stood there. We looked at time. That's what it is. Like, you know, like the grand Canyon is like this monument to uh, geological time or is it geologic time? You know what I mean? The different colors of rock signifying different, uh, epochs or whatever. It just gives you a sense of the scale, not only physically, but also in terms of the dimension of time. how small you are. I have this fantasy about going and uh, taking a raft trip through the Grand Canyon. I've been telling my wife this for years. I think I'm hinting. I want her to do this for me. Get me a raft trip. I want to take like some buddies and I, we get on a raft and we like raft the entire Canyon. I think that sounds fun. Maybe it's hellish, but I feel like that would be good. That it would be a good thing to do before I get too old. I want to get down in it. You know, it's like, it's one thing to stand up on the top and look down. I want to be down in the thing. I want to see what that feels like. So I would go back. I didn't mind it. I would go back to Sedona. We did a little bit of time in Phoenix too. I'm not a huge fan of Phoenix. I don't know what Phoenix feels weird to me. (laughs) I'm sorry if you're listening in Phoenix and you love Phoenix. Maybe I'm missing it. I just, you know, it's sort of like Palm Springs on steroids or something, but it's a, not a fan of either place. But I like Sedona. So I did that. What else? We had some airplane, you know, we had some air uh, airplane woes on the way out there. We get up for like a six thirty a.m. flight, which like that's a strategic decision. I think like if you go out on the first flight of the day, your odds of being delayed are minimal because if the plane is just sitting there, it's the first flight out. So whatever difficulties, uh, you know, come along with that, like getting up at four in the morning or whatever to get packed up and out to the airport, 
I feel like you benefit because then you're there, you're out early, you get there early. So we did all this. We get to the airport. We check all these bags. I've got my kids. We're lugging them through the airport. We get on the plane. We sit on the plane for an hour and change. And then they make us get off the plane due to technical difficulties. And the next flight out is at noon. So it's like 7.30 in the morning. We got to wait until noon. I'm just like, fuck it. Let's get our bags. We'll go home. So we pack the car back up, drive home, sit at home for two hours, go back to the airport, do it all again, check in. <laughs> didn't get to uh, Sedona until after dark. So we got up at four in the morning, didn't get to our destination until after dark. We missed our like Jeep tour. Just a big pain in the ass. Airlines are a big pain in the ass when they don't work. I have no patience with it. And uh, the other thing, too, is we rented a car. We rented an SUV when we got to Phoenix. And I had uh, booked this thing online. I got a price and booked the thing online. I said, this is the price. I, I needed a car seat. I needed a booster seat. I needed all this shit. I got to get an SUV so we could fit everybody in and all of our bags and stuff. And so uh, I go to the, I finally get to the, the car rental place, which is like two miles from the airport. You got to like walk through the airport and go on people movers and then take a bus like 12 minutes to the, I mean, it's a, it's the most logistically uh, nonsensical arrangement in the history of uh, air transit. So I get on this bus and we're finally at the like uh, rental car desk and the guy's like, oh, by the way, this is like $200 more than uh, the quote that you got because you had a car seat and a booster seat. And you can imagine my state of mind after a full day of travel with two young kids and a delayed flight and a going back home and a checking the bags twice and all this stuff. And I just was like, I blew a fuse. I was like, no. I said, no. And he's like, well, I don't know what to tell you. And I was like, what's your manager's name? And he's like, Cassandra. And I was like, call her. So then he calls her and he explains. And by, like, I, was, I was within my rights. There's a, you go online, you book the, the car, they give you the price, you pay you know, you punch in your credit card information, you make the reservation, like you should, it's reasonable to expect that that's going to be the price. It's not going to be $200 more than the price. I, I specified when I made the reservation that I needed the car seat, the, the system knew that I needed the car seat. It's not like I sprung that on them after the fact. So I'm explaining this to this guy. <laughs> and uh, it finally gets to the point where he's like, well, sir, uh, you know, I just talked to my manager. She basically said you can either... Like, we'll, we'll split the difference with you. We'll, we'll, get, we'll only charge you $100 more. Or you can just go, go to some other rental car place. And I was like, okay, well, fuck it. I'm going to go. And then I stopped myself. I was like, I do not want to start this whole process over again. And the guy was sort of like, I, you know, I don't know if you're going to find an SUV. We're pretty sold out right now. So he was sort of throwing that at me. But it was bullshit. And it was Avis, by the way. Avis rental cars. Don't ever, don't ever use them. They're scam artists. They have shitty customer service. So... I made this guy give me the name of his manager, which is Cassandra Miles, and I'm uh, going to pen, I'm going to pen a letter to the uh, CEO of Avis, complaining about all these people. I just finally just said, fuck it. Here's your hundred dollars, you fucking criminals. So, I mean, what do I tell you? That's travel stuff. Hiking around, natural beauty. If you've never been to Sedona, I do recommend it. Like in terms of natural landscapes, it's sort of like, uh, you know, what do you call that area in Utah? Is it Bryce Canyon? Four Corners? You know, all that kind of stuff. It's beautiful, beautiful, straight out of like a Hollywood Western 
red rock landscape. Highly enjoyable. And they have these, like they, they call it these energy vortices. They have energy vortexes. There are like certain spots in Sedona where like supposedly like you can feel your body tingle and like people start weeping. And uh, when we were in this pink bus on the way to the Grand Canyon, I was like talking to our tour guide and I'm like, well, who, who decided that there's these energy vortices in Sedona? And she's like, oh, there's this woman from North Carolina whose uh, spiritual guide told her. <laughs> I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? Some just, I thought it was like, you know, some ancient Navajo thing. No, it was like just some woman from North Carolina who came to Sedona and declared that there's energy vortices. And, uh, this tour guide of ours was like, oh yeah, but you got to realize that, uh, you know, I was driving some women around on a Jeep tour to the energy. We have a energy vortex tour. You can take a pink Jeep to the, the vortices. There was a woman who was recovering from cancer treatment and she was weeping at every single one. And I'm like, well, okay. As if that's definitive proof. I don't buy that shit. Like, I mean, until I feel tingling, until I start like uncontrolled, you know, I'm sobbing for no reason. I'm not going to put my uh, eggs in that basket. I can't do that in life. Maybe that's my problem. I'm like, not capable of that kind of thinking. Oh, well, some woman in North Carolina with a spiritual guide figured this out. And, and, uh, by the way, she also happened to find the only other place she found, uh, similar vortices were, uh, were in, uh, North Carolina, her home state. How, like, how, how convenient is that? not buying it none of that shit ever registers with me you know what i'm saying maybe it's because i'm not a believer i you know i think you sort of have to be ready for it you got to believe i'm in yeah i love the energy i feel it and i'm more like no like you show me i'm not gonna i'm not meeting you halfway you want to call this an energy vortex okay show me some show me some stuff let's see let's feel some tingling why am i not crying So we're in this pink bus and it's been like 10 hours. It's a long day. You drive like two, it's like two hours from Sedona to the Grand Canyon. Go through like a Navajo uh, reservation. We stopped at like the trading post. It's like part of the tour. You go in and you buy, you can buy like a Navajo like blanket. You know, like we all got like Grand Canyon (laughs) t-shirts. But, uh, you know, by the, by the end of it, you're like at, we were like at 10 hours. We start talking about the vortices again. Like we, you know, you're 10 hours in a pink bus with like five kids and screaming and everyone's like, eat, like my sister's family, everyone's like eating like turkey sandwiches in the pink bus. And I'm just like, enough. Like Fritos. You guys know my uh, quandaries with like eating and, and modes of transportation. You're in a closed environment. We had a picnic lunch. It's not like, you know, you had your chance in the open air to enjoy this food. Everyone's constantly hungry. Like, you know, it's like, oh, we're in a pink bus. We need a meal immediately. We need a meal. Oh, my God. We've got a two-hour drive. What are we going to do? Give me a turkey sandwich and some Fritos and a Dr. Pepper because, uh, you know, the world's going to come to an end if I don't have this now. And by the way, there's four energy vortexes in uh, Sedona, according to a woman from North Carolina. So you can imagine my state of mind. And so I, 
you know, our tour guide was lovely. She was a very good tour guide. She was very personable and uh, congenial. But uh, I took issue when she's explaining the energy vortices and started, I declared that I was an energy vortex. <laughs> I was like, I am, I have declared on my authority as a man from California that I personally will cause you to uh, tingle and sob if you come within five feet of me. And then uh, my daughter was asleep. And uh, what did I start doing? I always tease her that I'm going to shave her head. <laughs> like, uh, you know, if I'm trying, like, if I think she's like half asleep or she's faking it, I'm like, okay, give me the clippers. We're going to give her a mohawk. So I started doing that. Start this new year off right. I'm going to shave this kid's head bald. I don't know if that's a nice thing to do, but she knows I'm kidding. I think she knows I'm kidding. Never followed through. So, you know, it's like weird. It's, a, it's like vacationing with your family. It's like not, it's the, vacation is the wrong word. I had a friend of mine, my buddy Adam, who was on the uh, last episode of 2017, the Goodbye 2017 episode. He told me before I left, he's like, it's, just don't think of it as a vacation. He's like, it's like an adventure going on some sort of weird adventure it's going to be exhausting but you'll you know you'll make some memories and that's about right staying in a hotel kids aren't like really sleeping my son had a cold it's like you know it's like blowing his nose constantly wiping his face but overall it was uh, positive I'm not complaining it was good to just get out of Los Angeles and to go spend like some slow time with my kids, which I don't get very often. I did enjoy it. I did enjoy that part of it. And, uh, you know, seeing my sister and her kids, we went out to eat a couple nights. You go in like with a party of like, well, I guess it was a party of 11. I think that's what it was in total. So you walk into a restaurant and just like, yeah, we need this giant table. You're in these like loud restaurants. Nobody can really hear anybody. You're at like a long rectangular table, so you can only really talk to the person directly next to you or across from you. These waiters, <laughs> like our, you know, our service, uh, whatever you call them, wait staff, trying to like take everybody's order. Everybody's got like special requests. Light on the dressing. And you just get light on the dressing and put this on the side and no cheese. And, you know, and you're just like, ugh. You just feel terrible for these people. We're just too much. We're like too much humanity. I know it's good money for the restaurant, but it's just like, eh. Yeah. feel bad just being there. So it's, uh, it's 2018. I got to say, uh, you know, I mentioned this, I think, in the last episode as I was sort of summarizing 2017. Crazy year, uh, dystopian year, batshit leadership decisions and... Uh, political situation and my hopes for 2018 are not that high i think it could be worse and i feel like the first few days of 2018 have uh, borne that out already like things are rapidly going bananas and i don't know where it's going to end and it's terrifying lauren and i talk a little bit about this towards the end of our conversation So, like that's like the backdrop to everything I'm like hiking in the desert i'm making fun of the energy vortexes I'm like awed by the beauty of nature. And in the background, I'm just thinking like, what the fuck is going on? It's a weird backdrop. It's like some crazy stage play off to the, you know, off to the right. 
with like real stakes. Just lunatics. It's fucking exhausting. Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Anyway, I'm uh, very pleased to have Lauren Haldeman here on the program today. She's a poet. She lives in Iowa City. She has a new collection out called Instead of Dying. It is the winner of the Colorado Prize for Poetry and is available now from the Center for Literary Publishing at Colorado State University in a lovely little edition here. It's called Instead of Dying. Had a great time talking with Lauren. Here she is, folks. This is Lauren Haldeman. I came here to Iowa City early on. I moved here from, uh, I grew up outside D.C. And uh, and I moved out here because I heard about the writer's workshop. So I came here as an undergrad, actually. So I've actually been in Iowa City now for like, I think, 20 years. Oh, my God. So wait, so you like, you were in a, you knew you wanted to write. You knew you wanted to study writing in college. Yeah. And you had heard about the Iowa workshop. And so you were just like, you know what? I'm not going to wait around for grad school. I'm just going to go there for undergrad. Yeah. And actually, the undergrad experience was, I mean, almost more amazing than the grad experience because I was able to study with these um, graduate students who were in the workshop at the time. So like Dan Beachy Quick and Robin Schiff and along with like being able to take classes with the actual professors. So, and we were kind of a ragtag group of undergrads. It, 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 we sort of informally made this like little gang, you know, of, of kids just coming here and trying to write. So did you, did that help you get in? Like, did you have an in? Like, did you know people and you know what I'm saying? I didn't have an in. And for a, a long while, um, it was very difficult to get in. It was even more difficult to get in if you had an undergrad degree from the University of Iowa. I don't know why that was, but um, so that changed a little bit right before I applied. Um, but no, I didn't really know anyone there. I And I actually had sort of given up on the dream because of, you know, like my 20s and heartbreak and all sorts of like spiraling I was doing. And one of the current, you know, a, a couple people in town had said, you know, why don't you try to do this? And so I, and so, you know, I, I decided to revive it for a second to apply and, and, and then, you know, got in. So I had, I was applying with sort of, you know, this old work from undergrad and didn't really think anything would come of it. Did you apply like for poetry? Is that what you did? For poetry, yeah. Okay, because yep. usually it's people who I mean, it seems like the 
the majority of people who go in are for fiction, right? Or is it, what's the split or what's the, how do they divide the it up? It's pretty even. So it's about 25 students each year and it's a two year program. So you're in there with about 50 other, po- you know, 49 other poets. I believe that's what it is. And 49 other fiction writers. And, you know, you're in the same building, but, um, for me, I didn't find like a lot of, we, you know, each group had their own different bar that they went to. And, uh, really? Yeah, like, like the poets didn't go to the same bar as the fiction writers? Pretty much, yeah. And we had different days of workshop and there was definitely overlap and there's definitely like inter genre marriages and and drama, you know. But <laughs> like like novelists dating poets and all that kind of stuff. Big time, yeah. It's huge. Oh, yeah. Man. Very yeah, and and nonfiction writers, essayists how, got involved. How how big uh, how big of uh, a sense of like competitiveness did you feel? Like I've talked to so many people who went to Iowa, yeah. and I hear different things, but a lot of people say it was like, really intense. Like, did you have that experience? I mean, the poets, like, I don't know what we're really competing for. I, I, <laughs> right. I, you know, like on on the fiction side, there are agents coming and there are contracts being signed, and the poets, I felt like we were again like. We were just sort of this this rabble rousing group of you know dreamers basically and drinkers and it's like the priesthood alike. it's like the priesthood or you know what I'm saying or like yeah. it's like a nunnery whatever you want to call it like because if you're if you're really deep into poetry yeah uh, I feel like there is sort of like a spiritual like it's like a calling you know you can't be in it for the money and you sort of have to yeah. I think you have to view life a certain way and live life a certain way to really go the distance in that uh, trade? Is that mean, is that how you see it? It is. It's a different personality type, I think, in many ways. And like, uh, you know, I've talked to so many poets who started off thinking, oh, I want to write fiction and just were, you know, dragged kicking and screaming by their own self into poetry, you know. So, uh, yeah, it, it, there isn't money in it. I, as far as I know, it certainly um, doesn't have the sort of competitiveness um, it definitely had the same, you know, sense of community. And then also, I mean, anytime that you add like awards or or, or like fellowships or scholarships, there's going to be um, a competitive nature to it. But uh, I felt less of that on the poetry side than what I'd heard on the fiction side. So, so and you say there's no money in poetry, but I was reading about, and I'm going to totally blank on, on this person's name and forgive me for doing that, but I do it all the time. Uh, I'm terrible with uh, with stuff like this, but I was reading an article about a young woman who is like the poet of Instagram, and she's selling oh, like, yeah. she's selling like tens of thousands of books, like writing these sort of uh, what do you call them? Um, you know, like really short, kind of pithy, like chat books or something. I don't know. She puts up little posts on Instagram where it's like you know, like three lines about beauty or like you know, depression in a relationship or you know, wow. the, the beauty of a flower and. She sort of le- she sort of leveraged social media to build this huge uh-huh. audience for her work, and then now she's publishing books, and like they're I think they're like bestsellers. Well, right on. I mean, go for it. Is she a millennial? It sounds like a very millennial thing to do. I think so. I mean, I'm speaking with limited knowledge. Uh, yeah. You know, but it was like one of these articles that was uh, spiraling around on social, and I just clicked through and read about it. But I was just, I guess, that my my question um, is like, have you ever thought of? Uh, or do you try to leverage social media in a way that would help build an audience for your work? Is that something that, like you do? Because it does feel like, especially Insta, like if you present yeah. your work in like an artful way and you're consistent about it and this, you know, I guess it's got to be a certain type of 
work, a certain type of poem that plays well in that format. But is that something that's crossed your mind? I mean, I love that idea. And I love the idea of like poetry morphing and, 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 and fusing with other things. I mean, I think I walk around the world seeing poetry everywhere. And so that really excites me. Um, and I was using Twitter actually as like sort of a, a, a poetry form for a while. And the, this book, the instead of dying, um, has two section in it that, that arose out of using Twitter, you know, before they expanded the character account, I felt like Twitter was this poetry making machine, you know, because anytime that you put limitations on language, you're going to get poetry. Are you anti, are you, what is it like 180 now? Is that the character limit now? The new I think one? it's like 200 something, right? Oh, it what is. What was it before? 140 and now it's 280. Okay. Then you're they ant- doubled it. I, yeah, I, I was kind of depressed about that. I was like, I love the compression. I like it being yeah. quick. That was the whole yeah. brand. They, 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 but they messed with it. Yeah. I mean, it's longer. So, I mean, I, I guess you can add more thoughts to it. But I felt like that 180 or the 140, uh, the limitation was I would go on there and just be like, these people don't know they're poets, but they're they're making poetry. I mean, and so I was actually using Twitter to catalog uh, quotes from my uh, then, you know, three and four year old. And I, I, I wasn't um, I wasn't trying to I didn't have a goal in mind or a project in mind. I was just really trying to catalog and collect the data. And then the more that I saw this feed and it was sort of like a private feed, I didn't really share, but. I was. I realized this is. I mean, this is workable stuff here. This. This is. Uh, you know. This is worthy of of a little bit of editing, a little bit of stylistic changes, and I've got something here. You know, it's like everybody's. It's like everybody's first draft. I feel like Twitter is like you where you work yeah. out thoughts, and I mean, like it really is. I mean, it's yeah. a, it's a writer's medium. I mean, it's, in terms of social, I feel like that's where that's where the literary yeah. literary community gravitates to. And it'd be interesting to try, you know, to go over to Instagram and try a little and work a little project there because, I mean, the beauty of poetry is a lot of times the, you know, it comes down to single lines that we're crafting, you know, whereas a novelist, I'm, you know, you're, you're working with paragraphs and chapters and, well, but you, and you, you do, you do graphic art, don't, don't you do web design and stuff like that? I do. Yeah. That's my day job. That's what, what I do here at, at the University of Iowa is I'm a web developer and a designer for the writing programs here. Oh, okay. We'll see that one. That, that makes you the perfect person to try this on because you could actually make it look good. Yeah. I'll, I, I mean, this is, I'm going to, if you can remember the name or maybe I'll go look it up after we're done talking, see, see if I can check out what the, what she's doing. Yeah. Do it. So I, I love the fusion too, of like the tech with, with the literary arts. Well, I've said this, I've, I've said this on this show before. I think poetry is, uh, I mean, of, of all the literary forms, I feel like poetry like uh, jives with the internet better than others. It's hard. Yeah, to, it's, it's, it's hard to, yeah, it's hard to read long form stuff online. It's hard to read it on your screen. It's like you know, some seven thousand word piece or whatever. But if you read a poem like that, you can read a poem on your phone. And like, yeah, you can. And it can yeah. be it can be gratifying. So, uh, but let's talk about the good stuff. I mean, you you sort of alluded to it earlier, and I say the good stuff in quotes. But you said like spiraling in your twenties. Like as soon as somebody oh. says as soon as somebody says that to me, I'm always, I'm always like, yeah. uh, but like in this in this sort of limbo period, uh, like when you say spiraling, do you mean creatively? Like what was going on in your life in between kind of graduating from um, you know getting your bachelor's or whatever as an undergraduate student 
and then getting to Iowa. Uh, you know, I think a lot of people find them, find program. them. Yeah, yeah. They find themselves sort of, I mean, I feel like your twenties are sort of, Ugh. you know, they're tough. They're, they're especially you get out of school and you have like a poetic bent or a literary bent. You're like, what the fuck am I going to do? Oh, they're the worst. I'm so glad I'm not in my twenties anymore. <laughs> <laughs> like everyone fears like their thirties, but man, I love it. I love it. Um, I was, uh, I, you know, I came to Iowa to, to write and I was writing a lot and, um, but, and then I, uh, also was part of a band. I joined a band. I was playing, it was a rock band. I was playing accordion though for it. And, uh, <laughs> as, and like, as one does, as one does, it was, you know, it was amplified accordion. So, and, uh, we, and, you know, I sort of like fell in love with someone in the band and, it didn't work out and i you know it was a it was kind of a point in my life where the like the magic of creation and the magic of of you know creative arts and writing and 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 illustration sort of failed me i thought you know i thought i could like win this person's heart with like poetry and and music. And I mean, I guess sometimes that works. It didn't work this time. And so I sort of just, you know, it was weird. I sort of lost my faith in, in, um, in making in the, in the, and making had been my, almost my spirituality for a for a long time. I mean, ever since I was a kid, I've been making stuff. And so, and I, you know, I, uh, I, the spiral was basically just being completely heartbroken, not only just from this person, but also from this idea that, you know, the magic didn't go that far. Like it, it you know, I couldn't, I couldn't win someone's affections. It was, un know. it was unrequited love. It was, it was completely unrequited. And I was drinking. I start, I just, you know, I spiraled into, uh, definitely like alcoholism and, Are you uh, you're sober now? I'm seven years sober now. Yeah. Oh, congratulations. Which is, uh, it's cool. I, 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 I've found that sobriety has been magical in, in a way that, you know, it's probably that magic that I had lost before. I mean, stuff happens in sobriety, which just completely blows my mind at, you like, know, like what, um, things that like, I don't know. Um, these books, you know, I've, I've been publishing, uh, and I, I've been working at trying to publish my work for, you know, 18 years. I mean, ever since I was a kid and, and it didn't happen until now. And it happened, you know, my third year into sobriety and then my seventh, there's also something that just happens with how you like handle life. Um, like I'm much better at, I, I just feel like stronger and at handling like emotions. Um, because, I mean, I, I feel like in this society, we really feel, we really fear emotions and we were almost like at the mercy of them. Whereas, you know, when you become sober, you realize like, I, there's no, I don't have like a quick fix to this. I'm just going to have to feel this fucking thing. I don't know if we can. <laughs> yeah, you can. Just gonna, Please. Okay. Good. Uh, I'm just going to feel this thing and, you know, watch it rise and then watch it fall. I'm going to have to like develop tools to be able to deal with the world. And, you know, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have done that before because it's hard. Do you do 12 step or do you do, uh, do you just do this on your own or? I started with, uh, AA. I had a friend, I, I came up to her and I said, I just can't do this anymore. Um, and it was right before Iowa, 
uh, was pregnant, got pregnant with my daughter. So it sort of corresponded with becoming a parent, which is its own growing up, you right, know? Right, right. It's hard, uh, and it's hard to be, I mean, it's hard enough to be a parent, let alone be like shit faced and hungover. You know? Oh my God, I know. <laughs> I mean, and that's the thing is I realized like this is not uh, sustainable. Like this, I'm going to have to just, you know, I mean, I, my love for, for my daughter sort of overrode any like need one want I have to st- to stay in childhood, which I was doing. I was, you know, I was staying in it. Yeah, so. yeah. make it last, make it last, and as long as you can. <laughs> exactly. So yeah, and now you know, now I uh, I sort of I don't work the steps. I have there's there's a sober recovery message boards, and whenever I'm feeling you know a little little shaky, I'll go on there, and for me, reminding myself of those first few days and weeks of of stopping drinking is enough to that's enough to solidify well, why know, is that my, well what about those first few days that what, like what is it that that does it for you i mean they're awful yeah. <laughs> i mean you feel awful your spirit is just in shatters and you you know there's a there's a certain amount of like confidence that is not there and you can hear it the exact same thing that you were feeling in everyone in these other people's voices. And, and for me, I remember that and I don't ever want to go back there, you know, that's an, yeah, that'll do it. Yeah, that'll do it. You know, I mean, it's, and especially the, even the days before making that decision, when you're, you know, the desperateness sort of that comes with needing this, this fluid, you know, um, it's really self-defeating. I felt, and I feel much, you know, that I feel stronger not needing the fluid, <laughs> if that makes sense. Yeah, it is a weird thing. I mean, you know, and I, I the other thing that I often think about alcoholism is that it, it, and maybe this is an oversimplification, but it feels like, you know, people who are alcoholic or predisposed to alcoholism, it's like an allergy. Yeah. Like you see somebody drink who can't, who can't drink. And you, right. wa- you watch them sort of glaze over or, you know, I guess it manifests in people differently. But I, I can think of a particular friend of mine who would just like, would just like a couple drinks, like two glasses of wine and like, it would, like the light would go out. And yeah, you'd be, you'd be like, you, you, yeah, you'd be like, this is not for you. Like, you can't do this. <laughs> like, yeah. But and it, it's like so frustrating, you know, like because usually those people, too, are, are, are you know, um, are treating a condition. With the alcohol, like they're they're self medicating, right? Right. And so, along with not being able to stop, you're also you're using it instead of other tools, and it's 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 pretty quick. It's a pretty quick device. Yeah. Well, I stopped. uh, I used to drink. Like, I mean, I'm I'm pretty moderate and and not uh, thankfully like super addictive. But I was I was a guy who like had a couple glasses of wine every night. Yeah. And uh, about, I'd say, what is it, like four months ago, three months ago, uh, I was like, you know what, I'm not going to do that anymore. And uh, I was able to stop, no problem. Um, but I was thinking to myself, like, well, why the hell am I doing this? Like, I come yeah. home, it was like my little ritual, you know, like you come home, you get off of work, I would like meditate, I'd put the kids to bed, and then I'd make dinner, and I would just have like a glass of wine with dinner, and I enjoyed it. But yeah. I, was, I was also like, why? It's like this like weird medicine and... It's, you know, like you said, you called it the liquid. Uh, the liquid, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I have this I have this whole, like, rigmarole in my head, but I just didn't want to be a person who needs something to, like, wind down every night. Uh, right, and, yeah. But I also, like, you know, over break, like, 
couple nights, like we were out to dinner with my family on vacation and like, I feel like that's fine. You know, if I have like a glass of wine with dinner, but I just don't want to do it when I'm like alone. You know what I'm saying? Like I'm yeah. drinking or <clears throat> sitting there watching like MSNBC. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, it's obviously different. Like, like you said, the allergy, you, I mean, you are able to stop. And my husband's the same way where, I mean, he's, st- he'll have a few beers every night or, and it doesn't bother me that it's in the house. And I watch him with curiosity, like, how is this possible? Like, I just don't, you know, he can stop and I can't. Like, right. <laughs> so, right. you know, and, but that's okay. It's, uh, that's okay right now for me. So, well, you know, it's just like, I think it's just biology. Yeah. And, but, you know, I, I got other stuff going for me too. So I try to remind myself that like, okay, well, we don't have alcohol, but like we've, you know, you've been totally lucky to, to have all of these other scenarios where people have helped you to develop like these tools where you don't necessarily need it, you know? Well, I mean, this is going to sound strange, but like the, there is a certain envy in me sometimes when I talking to friends of mine who are alcoholic and who have gone through treatment and, yeah. and who are in AA um, or who have, you know, I guess AA is the most common one that people go to meetings and they have this community yeah. and, and, they, and, and it's like a, you have like a, a, a therapeutic support community and like this entire structure to rely on. Uh, yeah. And I don't, you know what I'm saying? Like I have no church. I have no therapist. I have no, I have the podcast. <laughs> The podcast is your community. <laughs> that is. You're making it. <laughs> yeah, but I'm just saying. But yeah. I feel like I feel like I guess the point that I'm getting to is that like people who are in um, some sort of program of sobriety, like you say, yeah. it can be kind of blessing because it forces you to deal with your shit. And there are people yeah. I think who are sober and healthy and like they eat right and they do all these things right who are more unhealthy. Uh, spiritually or emotionally or whatever you want to call it than people who have, you know, gone through the ringer when it comes to substance. And it's precisely because they've gone through that ringer that I think they've been able to sort of um, untangle that knot like within. Do you know what I'm saying? Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, I think one of the greatest things I learned was just like about honesty. I mean, I, I always thought of myself as an honest person, but I was I was living behind like you know a a series of veils and especially in my own mind you know I was lying to myself almost daily and and AA and sobriety are I mean it all honesty is like one of the first things you have to 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 bring up and and apply to yourself and that it not only changed you know my my daily behavior but it may it made my relationships better to to sort of let down um, and become vulnerable. And it made my writing better. I mean, my writing pre sobriety, it's, there's a lot of pretending going on there and, uh, and sobriety just sort of kicked that out on the curb. You well, know? Okay. So what's the, cause this is a, this is something that I've noticed in my own work where as, as hard as I'm trying uh, to be honest on the page, I will, I will sit there and I'll be working and I'll be uh, thinking that I'm, clear as a bell and not missing anything. And then, you know, a few days, a few days later you go back and you pick it up and you, you read it and you're like, ah, oh. like it, it's, it's very easy <laughs> despite, yeah. be, despite best intentions to, to be dishonest or not to tell the whole truth or to avoid some unpleasantness or something like that, uh, right. both, both in life and in writing. And so my question, I guess, is like, 
what is it? Like, what's the procedure that you've learned that gets you more honest? Yeah, I mean, for me, with the first book, with Calendae, I thought my writing career was over. I hadn't published. I'd been working for so long. I was I was out of the workshop. I had this new baby. And uh, I thought it was done. I thought I was done. And there was a, a deep sadness about that. But I kept writing in like a tiny little journal. Like I would, because, you know, with a new baby, like I had maybe two minutes a day to myself. I remember trying to take a bath and eat like a a Jimmy John sandwich at the same time because I was like <laughs> constantly trying to like multitask. There's just no, I mean, not in our baby, you know, she had like colic and, you know, it was, it was kind of a full-time thing. And I was writing these tiny notebooks, not thinking that anyone would see them. And, and I was also sort of at a place of like bottom. I was newly sober. I, I would, did not feel natural at being a new mom um, I did not feel like I was doing a good job. And so the pages were f- full of stuff that I didn't think anyone was ever going to see. And um, and then about a year later, I showed – I was, I was writing them up on a secret Tumblr. Um, I guess I do use technology a lot. There you <laughs> go. I had a secret like private Tumblr that I was – kind of writing them up and editing just to see where they were at. And my friend saw it and her reaction just, it, it was almost the opposite of what I expected. And I, I decided to, to trust my friend's reactions to these things and not my own because I, I, you know, I hated these, I hated them. I thought they were crap. And, uh, (laughs) And, and it turns and wait, out they and you, weren't. And when you say you were writing in like tiny notebooks, like well, what do you mean tiny notebooks? Like were they actually physically tiny? Yeah, they were these little moleskin notebooks that it was a set of 12 that you're supposed to actually just write like your daily reminders or your appointments in. I mean, oh, they're right. the size of a palm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but the, see, this is the thing, though, is that like there's humility in that, right? It's like yes. it's humility and it's like a complete uh, absence of expectation. Right. You know, it, it didn't say like writer's journal on the front. It was like <laughs> basically like had like, you know, eight through five p.m. like where you're supposed to write, go to the dentist. So and a lot of those pages had just I mean, I, I look through them and like one page is just like me writing the word angry over and over. <laughs> I must have been pissed at like Ben or something. <laughs> it's just me writing angry, 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 angry. So a lot of the pages were total crap. And just re- but, repetition or. Yeah, or just me saying like, oh, there was so much poop today. Like I don't like everything. Like I can't get you know. I'm just very mundane stuff about being a mom or or trying to work a job at the same time. And then once in a while, there'd be this like little poem, and uh, it was a surprise. You know, I obviously that day I didn't mean to sit down and do it. And when you've written 365 pages like this. I mean, I you end up with about fifty poems. I don't know what the percentage is of. It's a low percentage, but did you know that you were getting a poem when you were writing them? Uh, not most of the time. No, I mean, most of the time they would start off as just me. You know, the baby's asleep next to me, and I'm getting ready to go to bed, and I just start writing a sentence. And sometimes it was just a, a complaint, and the or <laughs> love that like most of them are complaints. But uh, other times, it's, you know, 
it turns out to be something poetic. And a lot of times uh, I didn't do much editing out of there. The they sort of made themselves made little line breaks because the page was so small. So the line breaks just occurred and. I would just move a couple things around and it was set. So I used to, yeah, I used to journal back in like my college and early twenties, uh, like those years. And I used to call them my whining books and yeah. I reread them like in my late twenties and was like so appalled that I threw them all away. I was like, I gotta, oh, no, no, yeah, no. I was like, I, no, 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 I don't regret it at all. I'm like, I gotta get yeah, these into like, a, they gotta go into a landfill. They have to disappear. If anybody like, yeah. they just have to go. Like they were so horrible. Um, you erased you erased the, the events from your past. I, I, yeah, I don't want anything to do with that. But uh, that's it, good. Yeah, it was like, but I mean, you know, like, the, and the people, like, I'm sure people, some people listening are like, oh my god, you know, like there could have been no, there was nothing good in there. There was nothing. There, was, <laughs> there was, were no treasures. No, they were irredeemable. They were they're completely terrible. Uh, yeah. Well, sometimes you have to like it's like sleep. Like we, you have to clean your brain out of the crap to get to like a few good a few good pieces of writing yeah so much That's crap what you were doing. so much crap what about uh what about now like has anything changed in terms of uh the process i guess as your your daughter's gotten older you know things yeah. time-wise loosen up a little bit but then in terms of uh knowing when you have a poem uh or do you just sit there and just sort of free write and every once in a while you sort of like like you hook one you know what i'm saying like what's the what's the process look like well, so the new book, Instead of Dying, was the same sort of process. Um, I had these small pages, and I was writing the two sections instead of dying. I was sort of just – I found myself writing these imaginary lives for my brother. Well, yeah. Let's, you know. why, don't you, why don't you give listeners like an overview of the book oh. so that people can get oriented? Like in, Instead of Dying is a title of the new collection, and it's, right. it's a, sort of an elegiac – collection uh dedicated to your brother yeah so my brother ryan uh five years ago he was uh killed in denver he was walking home at at night and was um uh, he was stabbed to death on the street um it was basically just a random attack and uh a lot of i was two years sober at the time i had a a little kid a little bit you know a toddler and uh and poetry was part of poetry ended up being poetry and illustrating ended up being part of like my grief work. I didn't realize at the time it would be. But so I was learning a lot about how to grieve, which I mean, I don't think we there should be a class in elementary school on how to grieve. We're never taught really how to do it. Yeah. How do you do it? I mean, I went to a therapist, uh, a grief counselor in town here in Iowa City who um, works in the mindfulness tradition. So. Um, he was, his whole deal was to grieve in your body, to, to, to not add stories to the emotions and to, to stay in like, in the present moment. And it sounds like a lot of the, you know, kind of hubbub you hear, you know, like sort of the light, light spirituality. But for me, it became like this extremely powerful, um, set of rules to get through this sort of the pain, you know, that I was feeling. And a lot of it was about, um, about, uh, using your body, like basically your body knows how to do these things. Your body is an, it's an animal. We as animals have been grieving for 
tens of thousands of years. I mean, we know how to do it. It's our minds that mess things up and, and create stories and, and will keep emotions alive and, and send us into deeper and deeper suffering. And so um, the, I was just taught to, to go into my body every single time and just feel the emotion move through my, you know, my physical parts and name the parts, say like my chest hurts, my throat hurts. Um, and to, to just stick with that and watch it change. And once I started realizing it was the same with like sobriety is I, once I started realizing that the, these emotions change and, and they, they move and they're not, they're not there forever. Um, that, that really helped. And then also just trying to realize that like training my brain to know he was gone because a, a lot of the grief is situated around the fact that like it takes a really long time for your consciousness to catch up and and that's really painful the disconnect from like what's real and then what like your consciousness remembers as your story so I had to like rewrite my story in my head and so constant and that's where the writing came in too is like just trying to tell my consciousness like this is how it is now like this person isn't around anymore and this is what happened and then you you know you integrate it all so so your brother your brother was walking home from a bar or something like what was the what what happened so he left um a bar on uh pennsylvania I, i think it's pennsylvania street in denver downtown denver just sort of like you know, a, a bustling area in the downtown. Um, as far as we know, um, from, you know, surveillance cameras and from the detective work is that someone started following him and, um, uh, about halfway down that block from the bar, we, we believe that he was, um, pushed into a wall and then, um, and then stabbed. He was stabbed three times, um, kind of across his chest. Um, is some people saw it happening and they, they yelled, but they were scared. These, uh, two people in a car. And so when the person ran away, uh, they got out and, and tried to get, um, someone from one of the hotels to call an ambulance. The ambulance got there and, but Ryan, you know, uh, it was too much of a, too much trauma. He, so he died. (laughs) Man. And and like, did they catch the guy who did it? You know, there's a, there's some suspects. Um, there's still a, it's an, it's a cold case. There's a, there's still a detective on the case, uh, in Denver. And, and I can say all these things now, uh, without, you know, it's still kind of upsetting to say, but uh, it took me a while to to be able to to repeat the the narrative of it all. Sure. You know, you're just it, the shock of just being sort of a normal, you know, family, and then having like talking about our detective and right. talking about the crime scene, and you know, it's, it's just not something you think's going to happen. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing is that like life is crazy, and uh, yeah. you never know. You know, you don't know when, like, this sort of stuff happens in the world. We all know that, but it doesn't, you never think, you never imagine it's going to touch you or your family. And, right. And then it does. And then suddenly uh, you're living in this weird new reality. 
and I, I can relate to that. You know, I've had things happen in my life where uh, I think I said most people have moments. Eventually, life gets everybody one way or another. Yeah. And you're just like, yeah. holy shit. It's like that, that uh, why am I thinking of that Talking head song? Like, this is not my... <laughs> like, I know, right? You're like, wait a minute. <laughs> like, this... Beautiful, right? Right. My beautiful car, right? But, th- but, then, there's, but then there's also, uh, I do believe that there are p- some people whose lives are just blessed. They, seem, they sort of seem to glide right through. You know what I'm saying? Like, like obviously they die. Yeah. They get sick and die like everybody else. But like nothing really shitty... Like yeah. really, really shitty ever touches them. And uh, what's up with those people? <laughs> well, I mean, they're still suffering. Like, yeah, that's the thing. I mean, good, good. Okay. Like, you're making me feel better. <laughs> well, I mean, you're right. Cause this is what I tell myself when I get like jealous or whatever. I'm like, well, they're still suffering. I mean, my, like my, if I have a prayer, it's that may all beings be free of suffering. Cause like suffering is just the basis of our existence and suffering doesn't mean pain or lack. I mean, suffering happens. The, the richest people on earth are suffering. It's just a, it's just a state of being. And I, and that's like the whole, that's the goal, right. Of like mindfulness and of working with the, with grief and death and is to, to relieve your suffering. Are you, are, you, are you a Buddhist? Do you meditate and stuff like that? Like, would you consider yourself Buddhist? I mean, I if I'm any religion, I'm Buddhist, but I don't know if I can name what I am, you know, but I do. I meditate. I meditated um, like meditation really helped me with the grief. And like I said, when I was going through the grief therapy, I basically was like in this training, this like mindfulness training that now I carry through my life. I'm, it's hard for me to name um, spiritual things because I think it starts to cause problems very quickly among groups of people. Sure. We tend to be very um, uh, protective of our names to the point of, you know, violence and more suffering. So Yeah, I don't like it either. I mean, like I, I meditate and I, I read all sorts of Buddhist stuff and I listen to Buddhist podcasts, but people are like, are you Buddhist? And I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, exactly. Uh, what Buddhist podcast do you listen to? Do I mean, you, you, you listen to a Tara Brock? Oh yeah. I mean like you name um, it. Like this is, this yeah. is what people got to realize. Like when I'm moving through my life, when I'm not at work or I'm not doing this show, I mean like whenever I'm basically on my own, if I'm hiking, if I'm at the grocery store, if I'm on my way to work on my bike, whenever I'm doing, and sometimes when I'm at work, I, I'm listening to some nun or some yeah. person who lived on an ashram. And like, sometimes I'm half listening cause I'm like doing things at once, but I, I have this right. like compulsion to just have like calm, like touchy feely Buddhist people just talking into my head to sort of replace whatever other thoughts I might have. <laughs> oh, I know. And it's like so grounding. And it's, I listen to, if I'm not listening to that, I'll listen to like this. It's like a first nation, uh, flute music. My husband calls it spa music. Yeah, sure. No, I, anything. I'll listen to it all day long. I'm the same way. And I, I yeah. feel like I just like, cause, uh, one of the things that always um, or one of the things that's really stuck to me in terms of learning about this stuff is that forgetfulness is the opposite of mindfulness. And uh, I know some people cringe when you start talking about mindfulness and, uh, you know, I get it. But mindfulness to me just means being like alert, awake, aware of what's going on within you and around you, like just being tuned in, you know. And you do I do the meditation to try to sort of uh, strengthen those muscles. But it's amazing to me how easy it is to slip into forgetfulness. Like, I, like h- however many hours of these podcasts I listen to, however many books I read about this stuff, however much I feel like I'm resonating with what I'm hearing or reading, I forget over and over again. And then like, 
have to be reminded constantly. It's like it's insane, you know. And uh, the other thing too is that however many hours, uh, like you know, thousands of hours I've spent trying to practice this stuff, I fail the test like so often. Like you know what I'm saying? Like I, I oh yeah, I just was on vacation and I was talking to my sister and I was sort of like going over my life with her and I was like. I was so dark. You know what I'm saying? Oh. Like, I was just like, ugh, you know, there's so much shit going on. You know how you just sort of get into a complaining mode with somebody sometimes? Yeah. And then, like, after it was over, I was like, oh, man, like, why? It's, what? Not, it's not that bad, you know? <laughs> well, you had to do, you know, you were, it was your brain vomit. You had to get it out. I know, but I don't want to vomit on people. Like, if, it, I if I can help it, it's nice to not vomit on people as a general it's rule. It's true. <laughs> As a general rule, it's true. <laughs> and I just feel like too, family members. I feel too like you know you can get a little uh, self righteous or um, yes. I don't know what the word is, but you can be like, yeah, I'm I'm working hard at this. I I, I, do, I should be better. You know, like I should have this shit down better than I do. After all this time I've spent working on it, but I guess you got to have some humility. Well, yeah, and you also have to have you know some self forgiveness. I mean, you're not, you know you're you're further along than you were you know. Five years ago, ten years ago, one hopes, and uh, you know, I mean, any any time when, like, they call it, like, what do they call it when you a sit, right, for meditation, and I mean, the, the whole idea behind that is that you're not gonna do it well. Yeah, you're just, not gonna be like a great meditator. No, that's a that's a funny thing. Like, I was uh, I was writing about this. I'm working on this book, and I was writing about meditation, and I was like laughing as i was writing because what i was coming up with was like i'm really terrible at this and and yet i like to do it like i keep doing it it's like the i've never been worse at something that i like to do every day right and i mean keeping doing it is the whole thing and realizing that you you know realizing that you weren't that you weren't meditating is meditating yeah Yes, like, that was a 30 minutes of just me just like vomiting on myself, basically. Right. Over and over being like, man, I'm not meditating. I'm, man, I'm not or this. Is, I'm not doing this. And then you're like, oh, wait, that's the whole point. I just did it. I did. I had a there's no good sit. Right. Is that what they I've heard someone say that there's no good way to do it. And good doesn't even exist. I mean, in that world. Sometimes, right? I mean, sometimes you do have these like moments like, you know, spells of deep concentration or, you know, it's like I do have like little pockets of time. It's never. I, I rarely have like a 30 minute like blissed out you know amazing sit i guess every once in a while but what i find for me anyway is that i need to sit for a long time just to yeah. get myself to quiet down like people always talk about like 20 minutes and i'm like i need like 45 to an hour just to get myself to shut the fuck up a little bit i know <laughs> takes, yeah get your brain to just quiet down yeah it takes me a while but and and i like i feel like it takes me Maybe this is a maybe this is a good sign. Like the more I'm aware of just how unquiet I am, uh, like the deeper that awareness is, the longer I have to go until I realize that things are starting to settle a little bit. You know what I'm saying? Like just being tuned in as opposed to, you know, letting the chatter. I think that it's like that's the success, right? Is noticing that you haven't been meditating. Yeah, you've you, been thinking, and that noticing is that's it. That's the that's you've got it. The notice. And I feel like, too, you talk about grief or you talk about like the yeah. deep, the deep suffering of life, like w whatever form it, it comes in for you, uh, you know, to get through this existence with some degree of grace and equanimity, you have to have pain tolerance. Yes. You have to because pain's coming. You know what I'm saying? You're going to lose everybody and everything. 
that is dear to you at some point, and yeah. you're going to have to confront this stuff, and it's heavy. And um, I think that the the reflexive um, behavior in human beings when confronted with this stuff is to sort of turn away. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I think what, um, and, and, or to self-medicate, you know, yeah, definitely a lot of self-medicating, which makes it worse. Or to you go, know. go online, you know, just like look at your phone, like whatever it is, watch TV. Um, yeah. Read just, a, it's like to escape anything, right? anything just to get away from, and it can be even mundane suffering, just like the general, like boredom. Shit, yeah, shit. Yeah, exactly. Boredom or just any kind of like uh, unpleasantness. We constantly and I'm I'm still guilty of it, uh, you know, more than I wish I were is, you know, diving into your phone to sort of yeah. escape, you know, whatever's going on inside of you or, or turning on the TV and ingesting whatever that is. And uh, I guess like the lesson and it's I think it's it's, just, you know, it it um, what's the word I'm looking for? Like comes to bear. Is that, a, is that a phrase? Comes to bear? Yeah, it comes to bear. <laughs> it comes to bear, like, in particular, when you're dealing with loss or you're dealing with illness uh, and, yeah. like, these really intense states of pain that feel just, you know, to me anyway, like, they can feel enormous. It's overwhelming. And you go, right. holy cow, what am I going to do with this? And, you know, I think, like, off the top of your head, you're like, I just got to get away from it. But the truth is that you got to go into it. You got to sit there and you got to feel yeah, you gotta it. You got to go towards it. I mean, doesn't I, it, I never know how to say her name. Pima Chudron? Pema Chodron. Pema Chodron. Uh, her whole deal is going towards the uncomfortable and going towards the fear. And I've found that to be like so true um, that it, the running away from it makes it stronger. Um, before my brother died, I was a very anxious very scared person and you would have thought that this happening i mean this terrible murder occurring would have heightened that but actually working with it i've i'm i feel like a lot stronger because i just one i realized that these things if i had imagined this happening in my mind my mind i would have been a mess physically in the real world and in my mental you know scape of my hallucinatory brain you know mind but it actually happening like we have like you were saying pain's coming we we are built with the ability to deal with it but the but our it's not in our consciousness it's not in our minds it's in our bodies like our we we're built with the ability to handle these things um you know which gives me so much like love about like human beings and animals in general is that we have this built in. I mean, what an amazing thing. We just need to let ourselves do it. And so, um, so what do you do when you're sitting there and you talk, you talked earlier about like not, um, telling yourself stories about your emotions. Like you have a feeling like, Oh my right. God, I'm, Oh my God, I'm like crushingly sad. Like I'm just, yeah. And so, you know, the first cup, definitely the first year after Ryan died, it would come up like I would feel like dizzy or sick and I'd be and I first I didn't know what was going on and then I realized, oh, it's coming up. And so I would just sit somewhere and I would just say to myself, like, uh, I feel sick, sick in my stomach, pain in my chest, uh, my throat hurts, pain in my head, headache. And I would say these things out loud because I was just trying to keep my mind out of it because my mind would jump in and be like, are we going to go insane? Uh, is this the end? Uh, is this uh, uh, 
what happened? Did he did he feel pain? Was he scared? You know, all of this stuff added on to what was happening in that real moment was just I was feeling grief and my body knew what to do with it. I had to like cry or like scream or I would like sprint really hard or I'm you just break like, in, you just break into a sprint in downtown Iowa City. I mean, sometimes like I would, yeah, I would just start like walking real fast or sprint. Uh, sometimes I'd go in my car and just like, just wail and weep. I mean, I did a lot of crying at work. I'm so thankful for like my colleagues. Uh, I let my body like deal with it. And I tried really hard to keep my mind in the stories. Someone told me that like emotions only last 90 seconds in your body and what, and if it's lasts longer than 90 seconds, you've added a story to it, you know? That's you've, a good That's a good rule of thumb. And and I find that to be true. I mean, if I really concentrated on just naming what was happening in my body, it would change. It would shift. And then, and then it was like this machine that was like slowly processing what happened. And the spaces between the pain got, got longer and joy started coming back. I mean, I was really afraid I wasn't going to feel joy again. And, and I, I started to feel joy again. And it, you know, I just, I let the, the animal body, like the beast, you know, deal with it. Like I let the beast do its thing. And I, I'm not sure if we as a society, like are allowing that anymore. No, you know? there's gotta be a fix for something. And, you know, everyone's trying to perfect themselves and you don't, right. you know, everything's and, and, I feel too, like as writers, you talk about attaching stories to emotions. I mean, well, people who are writerly are partic yeah. particularly good at at creating narratives around their feelings and they have these rich internal worlds, but that can also bite you, you know, because you can, uh, yeah. you can be pretty convincing when you're talking to yourself. <laughs> oh yeah. And it's like, what does Anne Lamott say? Like my, my mind is like a, like a neighborhood, like a. Um, oh, it's a bad neighborhood. I don't want to go there alone. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. It, I mean, our minds, yeah, I mean, they're beautiful things. And I think that for writers, like part of the joy is that we can focus those stories, put them on a page and we're not like living them alone, you know, but, but, and I think you can do both. I think you can live your, your own life abs absent of stories or trying to continually remind yourself of the thinking and then, but also be a writer and putting the stories down. I mean, what I started doing was writing these stories about that Ryan didn't die and he's, he was still living these lives. And I know like my grief, you know, in grief counseling, that would have been like, you know, not frowned upon, but that's me do, doing magical thinking. But I, I was like, well, let's separate this and like, acknowledge it as magical thinking and in my real life like it's it was almost like writing them down moved them to another area where because i was i was walking around going oh maybe if ryan moves in with us and i can get him to you know like go to the i can get him a job at the co-op and then i'd and i'd be like oh my god he's dead like right just trying to yeah you try to come just trying to come to terms with like a really like difficult reality. It's amazing how we can like trick ourselves and yeah, uh, I don't know. It's, it seems, and it's also very natural, right? I mean, it's it like, is very natural. How, do you, how do you possibly believe something like that? You know, <laughs> it takes a while. Right. I mean, it's not part of your family. It, it wasn't, I remember saying that I don't want this to be part of our story. I don't want it. And it's, it had nothing to do with my want. 
you know, it was. And then I realized, like, what do I mean by our story? And I realized, like, I'm, I've been living my whole life and we've just developed this story. And it may be real and it may not be real. Parts of it may or may not be real. But we've all done that. And and then someone dies in your living story and you're like, oh, my God, wait, do I have to rewrite this character? I remember remembering him after he died and being like, now the memories are different. Like, I can't remember him as a little kid because he's a dead, a dead, you know, like, yeah, even the memories I had to rewrite. And that's painful to do, you know, I mean, that's, that's painful stuff to do. And that it, and I can see why people would want to not do it. Yeah, it's not easy work. It's not easy work. And it's, re- I mean, it's really hard work. But I, I think the other, the, the alternative is, you know, starting to drink again or ignoring it or putting it off. I mean, that's just going to create more like pain and dang, I mean, I'll be rough on my organs. Like, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. It's not, yeah, holding stuff in there. So, but what I mean, you talk about a couple of things, like, you know, you face something like this, which is, uh, I think, you know, it, it falls into the category of, uh, you know, people's worst nightmares, like people talk yeah. about things they never would want to have to deal with, like having a family member murdered uh, would probably rank right up there. Yeah. And you're in, um, you know, statistically, you know, this like small category of people who've had to live through something like that. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, obviously not great, um, but considering it's what it's what is, um, you know, you talked about being more anxious before it happened and having less of that now. Uh, I guess like, you know, you, you forced you to confront it. You have to, you know, you have to really face up to your fear. And, um, I don't know, I guess like if you, if you do the work that we've been talking about and you try to approach it from a healthier perspective, instead of running away from it, um, if there is any kind of uh, positive that, that you could derive from it on a personal level, it's that maybe you're a little bit less afraid now. Is that... Yeah, I mean, I I think just the tools that I had to develop are, you know, they they every day I use them, you know. I mean, every day if I'm it, you have emotions every day. You're not going to you're not going to wake up and every day you have things that make you nervous or or um you know, you check Twitter and I get like <laughs> what I call Twitter induced dizziness. Like yeah. I literally have physical reactions to Twitter at this point. And and then I can and then I can remember, okay, what are my tools here? Like what what's really happening in this room, in this chair right now? Um and also I realized that as bad as as this was, it was it it happened in reality. It didn't happen in my mind. And so it had uh borders. I mean, th- when you make up these stories in your mind of these terrifying things happening, they there are no borders. Um, and so working with what had happened in these borders, I mean, there's so many mundane parts of that, too. Like I still had to get up with my daughter every day right. and put and put clothes on her and and get her to school. And I still had to um, put her to bed. I, st- I, you know, we had to set up like the funeral and we had to eat and we had to and all of these things were like very grounding and you never put those in your imagine your imagine imagined terrifying stories you never put eating in there or like going to the bathroom 
you know? Yeah, you got to get up and make breakfast in the midst yeah. of all this. Like, you know, it's crazy, especially with, as a parent of a young child. Like, the, the, like yeah. the, it doesn't stop, you know? Like, it you, doesn't stop. You got to be you on your, and you got to be on your game, too. You can't just fall apart. Right. And I mean, some people do fall apart. And, and I think that that's like fine and as well. And I certainly fell apart in different ways, but it wasn't, it wasn't all falling apart. And like I said, there were, there were structures in place that like, you know, weren't there in, in any of the like horror films that I play in my mind. So it, it really reminded me, it not reminded me, it made me realize for the first time that, that a lot of my fears when they happen in my, my head, that I'm not adding in the the realities of of what would happen if it were to actually occur, you know, and and definitely not adding in like the realities of like community, you know. I mean, I like we you were saying earlier, you don't have, you know, you sometimes miss not having a community or whatever. And I I don't have a church either. Or at that time, I had sort of a, but not really strongly, but just this city of Iowa city, like the community I had here, like turned on. And that's, what it I was, was... going to say, you live in the Midwest. That's a, like, that's, uh, it, it does make a difference. Like I live in Los Angeles and there's some really good people here, but it's not yeah. the same. Like Iowa city I'm imagining is like sort of this, uh, really like, it's like a womb, <laughs> nice, a pe- wombie, nice yeah. people who like bake you things and like come over and people are nicer. They just are in the Midwest. I feel like. But I mean, have you have you had to have your network turn on yet? I mean, it, it may be there, and yeah. So, I mean, did you? Is it there? Not really. I mean, no, no not like that. You know, I okay. mean, part of it's me, probably. I'm not like super. <laughs> su- <laughs> I'm I not. That. I got so much going on, you know. Like I and and it's just it's logistically harder to sort of like congregate in L.A. and yeah. you know I don't know. It's just, it, but I I grew up in the Midwest and I go back there to visit or I'm talking to my yeah. sisters and it's just, I just feel like there's something to it. You know, people, um, people reach out or there's just like a stronger sense of community and like uh, connectedness or something. And yeah. when you live in this big, huge sprawling metropolis, it's just like, it's every man for himself. Um, is it still, oh, man, I was watching those fires. I was like, Oh my God. Yeah. It's yeah. No, it's, it, you know, it's, and I was, you know, just, I was just this morning, uh, I was out and I'm just riding, just riding around and, uh, there's just a dude in a cardboard box and you know, Uh, all that shit is everywhere. Like you just see it, you see it constantly. So, and in some ways, like I'm sort of like, this is going to sound wrong, but I'm sort of grateful to be exposed to every single, like there's so much life happening here. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, that's not wrong. You're not, you're not insulated from anything. No, you're aware. It's it's in your face. It's in my face constantly. So you're just like, holy shit. You see some guy drive by in like a Tesla and he's like, you know, he's got a facelift. And then you see some guy like, you know, walking around with his pants around his ankles pooping and you're just like what in the world is going on like and that's not even a joke <laughs> like, yeah i'm sure you've seen both those things i've seen both i mean like literally i saw At the that. same time yes yeah you know and so you're just like wow how do i process this it's a lot to it's a lot to sort of uh digest that is a lot and you it makes you feel very small you know i think in and i don't know how to you know i i think i it's difficult to figure out how to move through a world as an entity without, you know, wanting, wanting to change it all and relieve like all the suffering, but being, you know, a single person, um, especially, you know, after like the election and everything, I, I felt this like 
enormous need in this in this really small the smallness of of my single you know body with hands and arms and yeah I don't know I I'm not sure exactly what the process is I started doing like small things that I could that I could handle as a single person and hopefully that adds to you know well, but it's like, here's a, here's a question I, I run up against. It's uh, like, where's my line? Like, wh- what do yeah. I, like yesterday I was, uh, we got back from our trip and I had to go get groceries cause we got no food in the house. So I'm like, I'll go do the groceries. Uh, you, you know, you, I told my wife, I was like, you nap uh, river, our son, and then I'll go get the food. And so I'm driving and I'm riding, I'm driving down like a, through a nice part of LA, you know, like, it's not like I'm in some like, you know, indigent, you know, part of town like it's a nice part of la broad daylight plenty of people walking by and there is a woman literally just like out cold on top of a suitcase on the sidewalk like looks like looks like she's dead and i'm in my car and you have this moment like this is this is something that's a very regular occurrence to me where it's like do i stop yeah like do do i do i just keep and i kept driving i didn't stop because like a i was in the flow of traffic but then i'm like on my way to trader joe's and i'm like am I a shit person? Like this woman was like, look, she could have been dead and people are just riding by. And you're just like, I don't know. Like, where do I, like, what's the right course of action? Like, I guess that's what these kinds of, um, confrontations cause in you is like, you start to evaluate yeah. yourself. You're like, what, what, what do I do? Like, where, where's my standard? Like, shouldn't I be right. like, wouldn't Gandhi stop? Like, you know, like, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, Maybe at some point in Gandhi's life he would have. I'm I'm sure there was a point where I mean I feel like these are habits that we develop in ourselves, right? And it takes courage to. I mean, basically what you're up against is is that takes a lot of courage and guts to stop and and check. I mean that's a fearful situation, uh, and I mean I I try to just make sure that I'm noticing the steps I'm taking like towards that and am I creating habits like that that help others and I mean that's the definition I think of karma is just habits that are helpful and not harmful right yeah and so I mean I I don't know if it's going to be like a giant like shift all of a sudden where you're doing all of these things and you're like you know, after Ryan died, I was like, I need to quit my job and do Peace Corps and go to the, right, right. the most the, hurting places. Save the world. And even my, you know, mindfulness guy was like, oh, let's not do that. Yeah. You know, like you, there are people you are helping here. You're a mother, you know, the, uh, you're, it's a community service to, to stay healthy and and happy for your child and your family and for the people around you. I did, I mean, I signed up for big brothers, big sisters, and that also feels like a really small thing. It's one kid, you know, it's one kid that I see once a week, but I'm just trying, I just try to, to be okay with that feeling small. And, but, but hopefully, you know, for a single world, you know, a conscious world of this one kid that, 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 that might help, you know, yeah, so, it makes. A I don't know. It does make a difference, and that's the thing too. Yeah, like the uh, humility uh, can also apply to uh, 
you know, benevolent acts. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like sometimes you can, there can be grandiosity in best intentions. <laughs> you know, like you don't have yeah. to, you don't have to go out and save like a country or like, you know, save millions of people's lives or, you know, sometimes you can just like affect one person's life uh, really well, deeply. There are, there are tons of us. So like if all of us, you know, did what we considered small things, but on a, on that giant scale, I mean, it's the same as writing like a tiny, in a tiny sh- notebook but doing it 365 years days a year the years yeah. i felt felt like it um you know i mean it's uh, it's got to be i don't know and i and i'm learning too like i i i feel like most of the time i'm talking out, out of my ass at this point and every conversation i have is i'm trying to like learn from it how to better do these things so yeah. i don't know man it's it's insane and it's and again like this is a very we're very thinky right now. We're, we're extremely thinky too. You mean you I, mean you mean people in general, or just you and me, you and I? Oh, you and I, right now in this conversation. I mean, we we're in the hole, right, where we're like overly think, we're thinking a lot about it, and <laughs> it's what I it's what I do, Lauren. I know, me too. I mean, <laughs> and I feel myself doing it, and I have to pull back and say, like, all right, what are, what are small things I can do here, um, and. And will I be ready for the next opportunity? Right. So, I mean, also, like, can I prepare myself to be helpful in the next situation? And will and that being helpful in that situation will help me be even more helpful in the following one. Right. Because they're going to keep coming. One hopes, you know, and yeah, that's the thing, too, is that like you have to get comfortable with failure in life. I think I got to get more comfortable. Like you just it's like a constant process of just like falling down, getting back up, dusting yourself off. Like yeah. d- doing some stupid shit, being like, okay, I forgive myself. Like try again, like over and over again. <laughs> like, yeah, like trying is <laughs> most important. I mean, I've been, I had been sending in this manuscript for, to this uh, Colorado Prize for, I think, fourteen years. Not this specific manuscript, but I had been um, for fourteen years rejected from this thing. And then you won. Yeah, and so like I don't know. That just seems like resilience. More like a like. That just seems like more proof of to keep trying. I say it to my seven-year-old. The most important thing is trying. It's not how smart you are. It's not, you know, how pretty you are. It's trying. Like trying is just going to be, that's what's going to put you over the edge. And that's a thing we can control as humans. We can't control, you know, like, are we smart enough or, you know, what our, what our genetics have programmed, you know, but we can control like effort, right? Mm, yeah, exactly. And and I think that's inspiring. Like the fact that for 14 years, you just kept submitting for this. Yeah. You, you kept trying, you did it, you did the work, you, you know, you, what is it? You put the stamp on the envelope and sent it in and uh, oh, yeah. that's how. Yeah, and like oftentimes like with just like a bad icky feeling, like, ugh, like I'm, we're doing this again. And all, all I am, all I'm doing is getting older and all, I'm, you know, the, nothing will come of this and just still doing it, you know. So how did you find out that you won? Uh, they called me and it was a number I didn't recognize, so I didn't answer the phone. And then, you know, a few hours later, they they wrote me an email. It was a Sunday and uh, and said we'd like to give you a call and i actually thought i was in trouble or something i i don't i mean that's exactly where my brain always goes you've done what did you do it's the cops yeah it's the cops (laughs) like you are in so much trouble and so when she said 
you know, you probably already guessed this with us calling, but you've won. I was like, what? Wait, no, I did not guess that at all. So, and not, and you know, not, and not a, when I was 18, I probably would have expected it because, you know, when you're 18, you're like, oh, well, I'm obviously the best writer of yeah. this generation. This is going to happen. The world will know immediately that I've come <laughs> along. But, you know, at this point in my life, I was like, are you kidding me? Seriously? You know, and after so much defeat and, and that sort of thing. But the work holds that, too. I mean, the work at 18 didn't hold all the defeat in the... You know, didn't have the depth. No, didn't have the living. So. So, so okay. So let's talk um, before I let you go, because, you know, you talk about facing fears. You talk about um, going through the grieving process in your body and sort of sitting with these tough emotions and like letting them letting them be without, uh, you know, adding some sort of narrative to it. Um, But the other thing, you know, when it comes to loss and grief is making sense of death. And like, what happens? And like, you know, you have to sort of confront those big, huge existential questions, or it seems like a natural process, Um, particularly when you're like in the intense phases of grief. Like, have you come to any peace? Like, did you come to a greater sense of understanding or peace around that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I don't think I came to any sort of like knowledge, any further knowledge of what happens when you're dead and my you know i remember having this conversation with ellie we were walking home and she saw like a dead bug and she was like oh that bug's dead i said yeah and she says but that doesn't happen to us and i was like oh shit are we doing this now (laughs) right can can we put this off yeah i was like i'm not i was like well yeah it does and she was like yeah but not to you and me and i said well yeah i mean at some point we're gonna die and i but i I said, well, what do we know about dying? And I said, all we know is that your body stops working. That's it. And she and she was like, yeah. And, you know, we had people die already. We had Ryan and our neighbor died. And I said, are their bodies working? And she said, no. And I said, okay, well, is your body working? And she said, yeah. And I said, well, that's all you need to know. Right now your body's working. You know, now and let's, I, let's stop talking about this. Mommy's tired. <laughs> I, I'm, let's not go further into this. I, exactly. I need to lay down in my bed now and go on Twitter. But uh, what so. do you? Th- so what do you think? Like, do you have like a, like a, we talk about mindfulness and Buddhism as a way of um, processing grief? Do you also have that kind of Buddhism? Like death is a state change. It's not, uh, you know, it's not like annihilation. Um, there's no beginning and no end, and life is like a river. Is that like kind of the thing? That, is that? I mean, I don't know. I don't know what happens. I, our bodies stop, you know. And I, I'm not sure what our bodies are. I mean, I'm, we. I think it's like where were we before we were born? I right. think that's exactly where we're going to be when we die. Right. And I don't remember it being awful. No, you know, but also like maybe I needed a body to remember. I mean, a lot of our, you know, our bodies have like all these systems to pick up like sound and light and and uh, feeling. I mean, they're these are all these systems and they're all body based. I mean, we don't you know what we what we experience of this earth is all body based. And so. It's hard to even imagine something without that. Um, and I, 
and and so it seems really scary to lose our you know like system our of of experiencing the uh, of experiencing you know the signals of life but it's just i mean it's just signal processing i mean we're just we're computers just processing signals and we you know we group them into to understanding and that helps us survive and helps us thrive and helps us create you know units right of of other signal signal receiving bodies i mean i I can get myself like real like i don't do drugs but sometimes i start talking about this and people are like what is up with you (laughs) like i will get like write a poem already for god's sakes i know oh my god but you know i mean it's just and that's another thing that i was learning you know through mindfulness is we're just we're just picking up signals like we we and we group them together into what we consider reality. But I mean, we're, it's, it's a, it's like an enchantment. We're like enchanted with this like processing of signals. And we're, and we, we really are just, it's a, like an illusion. Right. And so I don't know, after Ryan died, I also started going real deep into after, you know, uh, or near death experiences and, have you heard of the Monroe Institute? It's in Virginia. No, and they do, no. What is it? They create. Uh, they have found a way, like with al- like alpha uh, oral stuff, to sort of create near death experiences. And they there's this whole study of like a probability spectrum as well. Uh, if you look up, I think his name is like Tom Campbell. I I was watching all these videos about like the fact that, or not the fact, the idea that the universe is just a bunch of you know, probabilities and that we can actually like alter probabilities and that, you know, when that things that happen in the past, if there's no record of that happening, you could actually like possibly change it, which is good that you, that you burnt all of your past. Uh, <laughs> See, it was a nope. right move. <laughs> See? Um, and I mean, all this stuff is way out there, but for some reason after Ryan died, it was exactly what I needed. I just needed to get as far out there as possible. And I was reading about physics and the fact that like light is both a particle and a wave and wave, like what the hell? And I, you know, in a way it, it comes to a point where I just break my brain and just think, I don't know. I mean, I don't, I don't know what's going to happen. I can say that it feels like I have Ryan around i mean he feels around for sure um almost more than when he was alive like you know yeah 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 well i mean there's something like i mean i think there's like a a very strong biological argument to be made that like you know you guys are you're made of the same stuff right i mean he's definitely there a part of you like I don't know. Yeah. And like, and likewise with your parents and all of your ancestors, like it's all in there. And, uh, that makes a lot of sense to me. Like that, that seems solid. Uh, I don't yeah, know. And I get, I get like other cultures have like, there's so much, um, sort of attention to ancestors and, and speaking with ancestors. Like I get it in this weird way now where it's almost like it's nice to have a couple of like, close ancestors on the other side (laughs) it's like almost like i have this team over there you know my dad died about two years after ryan and it's weird i feel like 
stuff happens now where I'm like, oh, that's my team, like on the other side coming through or something. Yeah, yeah, no, and like grandparents and like deep, deep ancestors too, and like I've had some. I have you know my grandparents uh, from the south, and there's like some like racial stuff that bothers me about. Um, you know, my relatives, like the way they perceive of all the, you know, conceive of all that stuff. And I don't know, you just, you just sort of feel icky about it. And I would find myself talking about it earlier in my life in a way that sort of disparaged them or, or even thinking about them, um, in a way that sort of was disparaging. And like on those points, I obviously, I hold pretty firm, like I, that was misguided, but I've also like in the, in the subsequent, uh, years, found myself like apologizing silently. Like, I'm really sorry. I didn't mean to talk shit about you. (laughs) Yeah. I feel like they're still there. And like, I have so much deep love for them. And it's like, God, you know, like it's not good to talk shit about your ancestors. Like they're human. They fucked up. I'm fucking, I'm fucking up. Like, uh, they're your, you know, they're your squad, whether you like it or not. And they were, you know, they were, you know, 95% good, which I guess is, you know, that's pretty good batting average. Right. Well, they also might not have egos anymore to be offended. Yeah, maybe not. There you go. <laughs> so right. speak freely. You can talk shit all you want. Yeah. I mean, you know, exactly. So uh, you say you're from, I, I got to ask you this. Uh, you, you say you're from D.C. originally, mm-hmm. and your last name is Haldeman. So like, are you related yeah. to H.R. Haldeman? <laughs> no, I'm not. But man, when I was growing up, I, I, I'm from outside D.C., but uh, on the Virginia side, and uh, everyone would ask me when I was a kid. So I knew all about HR and like more than most people knew. Like, and then my dad's initials were HP. And so. Um, did, he, is that what he, not, did, he, did he go by HP Haldeman? No, he went by Paul. But oh, okay. uh, when he like signed things for me, people would be like, H, oh, are you related? And so <laughs> I was really, you know, as terrible as everything is right now, like. I, like it was exciting that like Haldeman was back in the news because I was like, oh yeah, all right. <laughs> now everyone knows my reference because I came out here, and after a while, there's like this generation shift where now people, when they ask me, you know, spell my last main name, I'll say, oh, but like Watergate, and they're like, I don't know what you mean. But maybe it'll come back. Maybe I can use like Watergate. Well, there's so, a no, good, I'm not no, there's a good podcast right now on uh, like Slate is putting out this podcast. I think it's called Slow Burn, but it's all about oh, yeah. it's all about Watergate, and it's like kind of the it, it's like the minutia of Watergate media coverage that like you didn't yeah. and and also like the actual characters involved and all the different twists that it took. But it like it's it's clarifying to listen to it in the context of the present day because you realize how chaotic it was and how uh, how many similarities there are between that time period and this time period and um, yeah I know looking it's a, back you you see it as like finished right but at the time it was probably just as stressful yeah and people like on the you know nixon supporters were like oh it's just the liberal media trying to bash exactly. him. and like you know one hopes that we're following a similar trajectory but like we also have to remember that like the democrats controlled congress when he was, it was a different time and like, and there was no Fox news. So there's a part of me that's like, yeah, it sounds pretty. It's pretty to think that like, uh, you know, we're going to follow a similar trajectory, but like things right now feel so fucking bananas that it's, uh, it's really terrifying. And you just have a, we have a lunatic president. He's a criminal. He's not well mentally. I believe that firmly. And yeah. you ha- and you have a uh, Congre- Congress around him and a media structure around him that is completely complicit. enabling all of it. They're and complicit, you know. And it's just like yeah. 
I don't know how it's, you beat that back. Like, what's going to turn this? Like, it's just a, it's an insane course. We're seeing like, I feel like we're seeing like a, a constant ratcheting up of human insanity and it has all yeah. the power and it's, it's not a fun place to be. It has made me, um, you know, I was, I've been active in politics for, for probably like 10 years. Like I was really, really into the Kucinich campaign campaign. Like I was playing accordion for that guy and like <laughs> yeah. going around part of his campaign and, um, and I have, you know, one thing is I haven't, even then, like I was part of that, the sort of, uh, activism. Um, but I, there was nothing like the force that is happening now. It seems like everyone is talking about it and doing something. Um, I try to do things at a national level, but I've found that that, um, is overwhelming and feel, and again, feels, I feel very small and, and, uh, limited. So I've been doing, I've been getting really insular and analog, right? Like, and just being, being like, oh, well, I'm going to put all my time into this person running for school board, right? I mean, or I'm going to put all my time into trying to make this community more resilient. Um, and, and maybe that will like make ripples out, but I've never volunteered for like a school board, a race before and I did this year and it just felt like it felt like okay here's the candidate like in person and it's like a small race and it's a it's it's like our our tiny like vicinity it just felt like a little bit like grounding uh in the midst of all this like twitter and what I see is like this huge large criminal you know conspiracy that I, it's hard for me to figure out even how to touch that. Yeah, yeah, no, but it's like, it's weird because I have a friend uh, who I've been like having a political dialogue with for 20 some odd years now, ever since college. And he's like completely disengaged. He's like, I don't go on Twitter. He's like, yeah. this is just going to be a blip in time. We have a young yeah. generation of millennials yeah. who are poised to take over. He's like, all of this saber rattling with North Korea is a bunch of PR spin. Like, He's like almost like completely disinterested and un we're unconcerned about it. And my take on it, I'm like, no, I'm like, we got attacked. We are continuing to be under attack by Russia. And it's a cyber, yeah. it's a cyber war. It's an information war. And it's like an information war, not only coming from like these Russian bots, uh, but also from like within, you know, cause like that's the, that's Trump's playing field too. So like, that's like the battlefield, you know, like to, right. or at least one of the main battlefields is Twitter. And I feel an obligation as a citizen to be engaged, like to be there. Yeah. Because if, if you just cede the field to these maniacs, then they're just going to, um, you know, it's going to be this deluge of misinformation and hate speech and craziness. And yeah. then it's going to be amplified by these bots that are retweeting. And so, like, I feel like concerned citizens should be in there. And should be disseminating. Um, it's true. Yeah. Like deeper info, you know, the, should be disseminating the truth. You know, making uh, every every effort to sort of beat it back. And and I'm not nearly as optimistic about, uh, you know, saber rattling. And I don't know. It, it yeah. just it feels dire to me. It doesn't feel like oh, this is just a blip in time, and history does its thing, and we're all going to be fine. That that feels like a kind of like a, a denial or something. But maybe yeah. I mean, maybe, at the same yeah, they're they're like real people are suffering like and because of it currently like right now you know children and uh dreamers and yeah. i mean there are there are real people suffering because of it so i mean it's 
I also feel the pull to like completely disengage like your friend. I just, I can't. What I do is I'll put timers on. I'll be like, all right, you have 30 minutes on Twitter. Right. Go do your thing. And then when the timer's off, like we're going to take the dog for a walk. Like We're going to breathe rapidly into a brown paper bag and then right, s- step exactly. outside. Because <laughs> our sanity is part of the, re- you know, the resistance. And uh, I mean, that's how I view my sobriety too now. Like, because that... The, the time I felt the most in these seven years, like I was going to drink again, was that was election night. And I thought, I'm not going to do, I can't, I'm not going to give this, you know? Right. Um, and, uh, and, and since then I've been like, no, this is part of my activism is staying sober, stay, staying sane, staying healthy. And I mean, I can do things, but I'm going to put timers on them. I'm going to put limits. I'm going to make sure that, um, you know, I like to call my senators in the morning to get it out of the way. I've got them on speed <laughs> dial. I'll do it while walking, you know. Sure. Uh, so my senators, I mean, in Iowa, I don't know what is how it, much. What is it, Joni Ernst and? Uh, it's Grassley. It's Grassley. Grassley. What is up with Grassley? I feel like he's. I feel like I something. They got something on Grassley. Yeah, he, yeah. He's behaving. Tell him to. You got to tell him to release those transcripts from a few. I did. Okay. Yep. I called. I called yesterday. I called the. I, yeah, the Fusion GPS transcripts. We've I've been calling, but I'm not sure what my calls are doing. But you know, I I feel like also like we we need to focus like very locally too, because uh, it is true. Like the more like state delegates we get into places, that changes you know the the election. Uh, inside of that state that changes the gerrymandering that changes the and that's something that we can do and we you know that isn't completely overwhelming is we can work on you know our state seats that's right iowa right now is completely red too like the the states in it the state congress the governorship i mean and and i feel like we've lost our focus there or something you know and our cities too like we can say oh you're not going to fund education but our sit we're going to choose as citizens to 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 fund our education here you know or, sure. i mean california's doing a lot of this right like california's like all right well we're going to make a lot of decisions of our for ourselves yeah no like if you're not going to if you're not going to you know take action to combat climate change we'll do it on our we own will. yeah and like that's and that's amazing and like california's amazing in that way and i feel like we can all across the nation, you know, learn, learn how to do that in, in really small, we just passed this bond in Iowa city that basically we all voted. It was, it was a major majority to, to tax ourselves a little more so that our schools could have this massive bond to be able to update them all so that they're all uh, heated and cooled uh, correctly. You know, shit that like the federal government is cutting back on, we decided as citizens inside of our town to 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 devote our money to and i thought like this is that's amazing right that's that give, gave me hope yeah well i feel like uh you got to get your hands dirty everyone's got to <laughs> everyone's got to sort of engage good people of conscience have got to engage and i know that there are people i mean there are people who listen it's a literary show but i I don't want to get too deep into politics on it on a week to week basis, but I feel like it's this unavoidable thing. Like, how can you not have this on your mind and how can you not be in conversations about this? I feel like we need to. So it's good to yeah. hear, it's good to hear 
that's you know that you're doing all this stuff. Did you hear? I just was reading this before we got on the the line together. Uh, like the Sarah Silverman conversation with one of her trolls. Have you read read that uh, today? No. Uh. Uh-uh. So you should check it out when we get off. But one of her, she had a troll being very aggressive uh, to her, and he she instead of like blocking him or attacking back, she said, "It sounds like you are in a, a lot of pain." Um, I, I, I just want to make sure that you're okay. And he sort of broke down and, um, it, you know, it turns out that he has a lot of like back pain, um, and also a lot of like emotional pain and it just like swung like the whole conversation and, and she basically sent out a call in, uh, the San Antonio area for back specialists and to people who might be able to help him in his community. And it was like, this is what we need to be doing. Like you talk about like Russian bots and stuff, but I think, um, and that is, that takes courage both on her part and on his part to, again, like talking about that vulnerability, like letting down those walls and now there's this whole thread of like people in his community coming up and being like, I can help or let me help this way or this way. And I and I thought, you know, there's something to that that it should be part of our playbook as well. You know, by the way, I just want everybody listening to know that my back hurts and you're welcome to send a masseuse to my house. Oh, <laughs> yeah. You're, is it your lower back? What is it? My entire back. I need a masseuse. Huh. I need a daily massage. If you guys could please make that happen for me. And uh, her ex, like, <laughs> it's just that poor thing. <laughs> like my, you know, every, it just seems like back pain is, it's, it's debilitating. So well, yes, you, please send him a masseuse. <laughs> when you talk and about, you talk about, but you talk about like the, well, first of all, I want to say with regard to Sarah Silverman uh, and the show that she does and like her approach to all this is like, she's really trying to like fight darkness with light and to, to be like, a you know, loving and it sounds corny to talk about, but it really is a big part of the answer. Like you cannot match hatred with hatred. It doesn't work. It just exacerbates it. And it's just one, you know, that's the other side of the same coin. Yeah. And I mean, it was just incredible to watch their, their conversation shift within a few tweets yeah. to where, and like, and I also hold these biases like, oh, you have MAGA on your thing. Well, I hate you. And it's like, no, don't. I, I I was like seeing myself and my reactions like, what are you talking about? Why would you hate this person? Like they're suffering. They're they're in pain. And like you've been in pain before and you know how that feels. And, right. you know, it just opened up my heart like a little bit. And uh, and that like that reduces my suffering, you know? So, I mean, it's, it's not corny. I think it's very powerful. I think it's like, yeah, I mean, it's, I think it's, it's like a, I don't know. It's just a powerful thing we can do. So, well, and it's, yeah, I mean, it's like, it's very tempting to just be like, fuck off you racist, ignorant, you know, assholes who supported this lunatic reality television narcissist. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, I can have those conversations with myself, but yeah, there's also, you know, not doing yourself any favors. I mean, that when you say that, like, feel the pain in your own body, like, yeah, like you tighten up, you know, like it's that's not good for your own health, you know. Yeah, I, I don't to, know. I know, and like the thing too, and I like you can feel people because like I can. I don't know. I have these like you can have these back and forth conversations in your head where you're like, no, 
like you know everyone's suffering the uh the landscape the political landscape and the emotional um landscape and the collective conscious or whatever you want to call it that gave birth to this moment in our history is born of a lot of human suffering and pain and desperation and fear and um you know we have to have some real uh empathy with the, yeah. pe- the people especially those people in like you know parts of the country who you know might be terrified that they're going to you know die homeless or yeah. who have lost everything but then but then though Lauren there are also those people who are just hateful racist yeah. and you just it's hard to it's hard to come around and be like wow this person is suffering a lot but i guess that's what racism comes from it's fear and they're afraid and they're they've let that hate i think like there's a james baldwin quote about this where and i'm going to paraphrase it badly but it's basically like you know if these people ever had to if they ever actually let go of their hate and the reason they don't want to let go of their hate is if they did they would have to face their pain yeah exactly i mean that's that's it and they're using that hate as a as a device to block and and i'm not saying we're going to go out and solve like all of their hate but uh and i mean i think you can have empathy with and still have uh, moral and ethical boundaries right do you know what i mean you can be like i'm empathetic to you but this behavior is not helpful and i you know it's unacceptable it's unacceptable it needs to stop and that's that's the same thing i say to my seven-year-old is i i'll love you forever but this behavior is not helpful (laughs) you have got to stop rubbing like you know throwing poop at the wall it's just not i mean this yeah this is unhelpful behavior (laughs) and this is why i'm mad well you know it's it's funny too because you talk about sarah and you talk about this Twitter exchange and you talk about like, it, it really does come down to, in a lot of respects, language and yeah. how we communicate with one another, how we respond to our fear and anger online. Like, uh, you, you know, you get into mindfulness and it's like mindfulness of speech, like the things that we say, the things that we communicate in writing. Um, you, you know, if you screw that up, you can cause a lot of pain. Like you can. You can kill a person with a, a nasty email. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. Um, and it, it's. I mean, we need to be taught how to how to do it more helpfully, how to speak more helpfully too. You know, which is. And once you're taught, I mean, it comes very. It, it's just like any habit, right? Where you just, you know, you you can learn how to to speak in a way that that isn't as destructive. I feel you know, like. I yeah, don't know. I know. I got to figure it out. I got to get better at it because I can be sort of snarky on Twitter. I can get pissed off very easily. Well, uh, I had to learn like being a parent, you know, like because man, being a parent is like a psychological test every single day. I, I fail so often. Like I'm, I, I know. I can be like my daughter will be like. I don't know. I just sometimes I talk to her like she's like 26. <laughs> she's like, <laughs> she's, like I, she's like seven, and I'm just like, listen, people die. Yeah. You know, it's like deal with it. Yeah. We'll get through it. We'll get through it. Just, just be quiet and accept it. You know, and and we tell kids like to not cry, and it's like, no, let them cry. Like we, you know, like I'll be like, okay, my, my, you know, I, there's this way of thinking about life is like it's all grief. Like when my daughter doesn't get to go to build a bear and get like her get like another bear because right. I say no. I don't know. Do you guys have build a bears around there? Yeah, I got, I got, I got conned into going. I got conned into going to build a bear one Sunday. Yeah. Where my daughter was like, I, want, I was like, let's do something together. It's you and me. Like, we're, you know, it was just the two of us. And I was like, well, let's do something. She's like, I want to go to the Build-A-Bear workshop. 
It's like, I'm thinking we're going to be like hand stitching a bear together and it's going to be like this. Yeah, it's going to be like this crafting exercise. And I was like, you know what? Let's do this. And then next thing I know, I'm in this mall, like 45 minutes away. And it's just some woman like pumping. Like you, it's like, it's like a gas pedal. You like yeah. press on the gas pedal and just like all this cotton or whatever stuffing like shoots into this like stuffed animal shell. And that's it. It's like the apex of capitalism. I think it's I think Build a Bear is like this shining jewel of <laughs> of the the it's like a, what capitalism dreamed it would be when it grew up. Yeah. Um yeah, I mean and if I say no to her, she's like mourning that. Like that's a loss, you that's know? A, totally. So. Well, it's good, it's good for her. toughen her up. <laughs> yeah, like come on. Uh, well, listen, Lauren. It's great talking with you. It's been uh, it's been in the works for a while. Uh, my condol- yeah. my condolences on the loss of your brother. Like I, I, I have a frame of reference. Um, having lived in Colorado for a lot of years, you know, I've been to Denver. I mean, I lived in Boulder, but I, it's basically the same thing. And so, yeah. I don't know. It hits home a little bit more to think of something that awful happening right there. Um, in Do you in, know the pencil. I sure. so I'm, we're going to visit the spot here at the end of the month, and uh, I haven't been yet. It's been. So, oh wow! Uh, it was pub on pin is where he left. Wow, well, so that- that's uh, that's an, you know, it, it's terrible, and uh, yeah. I feel for you, and I, you. I I I applaud you um, taking all that comes with that and turning it into a beautiful book of poems. Thank and you. congratulations on winning the uh, Colorado Prize on what, your 14th try? <laughs> yeah, right. Keep going, people. <laughs> All right. Well, listen, um, take care. Stay warm up there in uh, Iowa City. And best of luck on whatever comes next. All right. And you too. Thank you. All right, everybody. There you go. That's Lauren Haldeman. Her new collection is called Instead of Dying. Winner of the Colorado Prize for Poetry, available now from the Center for Literary Publishing at Colorado State University, Instead of Dying, by Lauren Haldeman. Go get your copy right now. If you want to track Lauren uh, down on the web, you can do that at laurenhaldeman.com. She's on Twitter, at Lauren Haldeman. She's on Facebook. She has a web presence. Go find her. Say hello. Thanks to Kill Rockstars for the theme song music and the uh, transitional music. There was also some... You know, piano music and some Japanese flute music that is not Kill Rockstars. There was a song underneath the uh, opening ad. That's not Kill Rockstars. It gets complicated. I mixed it up with the music today. But the uh, theme song, the transitional music, thank you to Kill Rockstars. Go to killrockstars.com for more information. Uh, This podcast has its own app. That's free. Go get it. This podcast has its own website, otherppl.com. You can follow the podcast on Twitter at at otherppl. At otherppl is the handle. You can uh, write to me if you have uh, thoughts on the program. You can email me. The address is letters at otherppl.com. So, good talking with Lauren. A big uh, substantive conversation to start the new year. You can tell, I I think you can tell that I'm glad to be back. I miss doing the show. It's good to uh, be having these conversations again. Happy New Year fucking weird year and you know as far as the energy vortex um like you know the energy vortexes go i don't want to be raining on people's parades if you believe in energy vortexes go experience it you know i don't want people to feel like i'm trying to poo poo the uh you know mystical or the ability of people to have magical experiences on planet earth Uh, i'm just saying that had you know, had I not been notified that this uh, vortex decision was instigated by a woman from North Carolina, had I been allowed to continue 
with my uh, faulty understanding that it was a Navajo, like an ancient Navajo declaration from uh, centuries ago. I never would have questioned it. I would have been ready for the tingling. But I don't know, you know, I don't know too much about this woman from North Carolina. Perhaps I should do some more research. Maybe she's more credentialed than I imagine. Perhaps she uh, has some sort of uh, professional background that I should be aware of. But if, you know, if listen, if you've gone there and you have experienced tingling or uncontrollable uh, weeping, I want to know about it. Please write me letters at otherppl.com. Explain to me the error of my ways. The other thing, too, is like uh, rental cars. The fact that it was 100 bucks more, it's not about the money. I don't give a shit. I know I probably should. I should probably be better about money and counting every penny and everything. But I'm not like that. I typically just feel like money is annoying. But uh, on principle, it was a matter of principle. It was extortion. These people were saying, oh, by the way, uh, we'll split the difference. We'll extort 100 bucks from you just because we can. And then we'll threaten you by saying you should just go do business elsewhere and you might not get an SUV. You see what I'm saying? Like, that's what pisses me off. Avis. Don't ever use Avis. Fuck Avis. I want to use this show to uh, send Avis's stock price tumbling. These people run a uh, shoddy business. They abuse their customers. They're liars. And they cheat. And they extort. They're disgraceful. They deserve to go out of business. The energy vortexes. <laughs> I hope we all experience the energy vortexes this year. I hope the energy vortexes work their magic. It's my wish for 2018. We need more tingling and weeping in the United States of America. 2018. It's not that I don't want to tingle. It's not that I don't want to weep. I just want it to happen naturally. Naturally.